Well, again, we're in Revelation chapter 22, and this evening we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Let's read our text together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of, I'm sorry, no light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. One of my favorite movie trilogies, I would have to say, was Peter Jackson's adaptation of Tolkien's famous book, The Lord of the Rings. It's interesting because the movie altogether is about nine hours long in its total. And of course, if you saw it in the theaters, you had to wait, I believe it was a year to two years in between each installment of the trilogy. But I think it is interesting that we began the story as uh, in a peaceful shire as Bilbo was uh, soliciting Frodo to go and to take the ring back and have it destroyed. At the end of the movie, where do they end up once again? Back in that same shire, but with a lifetime of experience in between the time they left and the time they returned. As we come to this closing portion of Revelation, we find ourselves once again in what seems to be a revised garden in the center of the New Jerusalem with God for all eternity. There we have a river. There we have the tree of life once again. And the anticipation of this moment was well sought in history past as the time of Ezekiel when he wrote in Ezekiel 47 that one day there shall be this river that Ezekiel sees flowing from the temple of God through the temple, getting deeper and deeper. And as the river hits the ocean, its healing waters takes the saltiness out of the ocean and all of the Trees and vegetation and fish are allowed to thrive once again. Zechariah also looked forward to a day. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem and half of them to the eastern and sea and to the other half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. This day long awaited for and anticipated. The bookends of the Bible starts with a garden and appears to end with one. As John last week showed us the exterior of the New Jerusalem, 
that the people of God will dwell within for all eternity with their God in the center presence of them all. No temple being there. No light is needed for God himself is the illumination for all eternity. Night does not exist for in him there is no darkness at all. And what we were once prohibited from touching and eating, the tree of life, the life that was to be eternal, the life that Adam and Eve had access to prior to their fall, is once again reestablished for all eternity for you and I. So they were expelled from the garden. God came in and remedied everything through the person of Jesus Christ. And now for all eternity, we have access to that tree once again for all eternity. That gives you a general understanding of where we have come. Now, think with me for a moment. Think with me for a moment. As you begin to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, things are going pretty well, aren't they? God creates all things and he calls them good. Adam and Eve are in a perfect state of relationship with God. They're enjoying his fellowship, his company. They can look upon him because they are perfect before him. There is no sin within them. Death does not exist. Any knowledge of evil does not exist within them. It is perfect. And then, of course, they are tempted They then succumb to that temptation. They fall. Death enters in. Sin enters in. And everything changes. The separation between them and God is now established because of that sin. Their perfection has gone to imperfection where eternal life reigned. Death now reigned. The dominion that they were given was now handed over to the ruler of this world, the one we know as Satan himself. And if you look at it from a very practical view, I like to do this every so often to remind us of all that God has done for us. If you take your Bible and you will realize that if you just, you know, get to the very first chapter of Genesis and hold it in your hands, this much of the Bible was perfect. This little sliver right here. It doesn't regain that perfection until, oh, this page... Right here, everything in between is what God has done for us to restore us back onto himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Think of the history from this point here in Revelation chapter 22 looking back. Just like Frodo coming back from that long adventure that he had. His life was never going to be the same. And of course, that's why he didn't stay where he was in the story. But we will once again regain that place of perfection before God in an environment of perfection before God for all eternity, anticipated in the Old Testament established in the new and now brought to fruition here at the end. Just phenomenal to think of. Absolutely phenomenal to think of. In verse 1, the angel again proceeds to show John 
as John has been eagerly writing all that he has seen up until this point and heard, he now comes to this last portion. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. In the Garden of Eden, there was a river that split into four. The water has often been used to symbolize life throughout the Bible. He characterizes it by being bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This water is moving. Moving water throughout the Bible always means water that is teeming with life. It is symbolized that way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Being bright as crystal meaning that the new state is pure and holy in every regard. There is no taint of sin whatsoever in this time. I can't even fathom that as much as I try. I can't even fathom that. Pure and holy in every regard, flowing rather than stagnant, meaning that it is not only able to provide life, but to sustain life. The throne of God is the center and it's the source of the river. In that time, When an individual came to a river, before he or she drew from that river in ancient times, they would often find the flow of the river and start heading upstream. Do you know why? They believed that getting closer to the source would allow them a more purified uh, portion of water from that particular river or stream. Because as you know, as a river or a stream flows picks up junk along the way, contaminants and so forth. And here the source of this living water is God himself. It is God who has given us this eternal life that he has bought and paid for and given through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He is the source of all life. A life is not built upon mere experiences, Life cannot be defined simply by one who lives and simply is surviving. The life that God desires for us is an abundant life in Him, with Him. That doesn't mean that He's going to provide every material want that we have or will stay in continuous uh, happiness and is sitting in the lap of luxury. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm talking about a life that is so unreal that the world itself cannot understand what it is all about. A life that contains a joy. A life that contains a peace. A life that contains a hope. A life that allows me through the power of the Spirit to live above and beyond my own personal capabilities. Allowing me simply to love unconditionally like Christ loved unconditionally. A life that is like no other. This life is abundant in this new Jerusalem. 
it is the most prominent aspect there with the tree of life itself. This water, this stream that seems to be flowing down the middle of the street. And that simply meant that it was the most prominent focal point there. This is what caught John's attention when he saw it. This was it. The tree, the water, the throne room of the throne of God itself. This is what caused, or I should say, caught John's attention. Again, throughout the Bible, the image of living water is used to describe God's life-giving and life-sustaining ability. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, one of my favorite portions of Jeremiah is found in Jeremiah 2, where he indicts the people, Jeremiah indicts the people for the abandonment of God and in the embracing of idols. And this is the way he says it. In verse 12 of Jeremiah 2, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. These people abandon God the source of this living water to embrace idols. The freshest source of water was a spring of water, a fountain of water. One of the worst places to draw from was a cistern. A cistern was a cavern often that was hewn out and it would catch rainwater. Now again, The simple process of bringing the water to that cistern was often just a hole in the ground, allowing it to pitch a certain way so it would gain the water each and every day. And if that water wasn't stirred, it would putrefy just like anything else. It would become stagnant, malignant, or brackish in its nature. The worst kind of cistern was one that didn't hold water at all. So when you went to the cistern, you never knew what you got. And God says, how do you abandon me, forsake me, the fountain of living water, for something that can't even hold water in and of itself? Think about that for a moment. Consider that. But here in this portion, that's all that will be there. That's all we'll want. We're not going to be distracted by the things of this world any longer. It'll all be focused upon God. One wrote about this cistern. He said, to turn from a dependable, pure stream of running water to a broken, brackish cistern was idiotic at best. Yet, that is what Judah did when she turned from God to idols. The psalmist anticipated this fountain of life. And he stated, for within you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light itself. Jesus promised this living water to a woman whose society had scorned. Society had shunned her to the point where she couldn't even go to the well at the natural times that the water was drawn, often in the morning. That was the time water was drawn. Can you imagine why water was often drawn in the morning? It was drawn in the morning because that's when it was the coolest. It hadn't been heated by the heat of the day. But she's in there in the afternoon. And Jesus meets her there. 
And Jesus says, if you continue to drink from this well, you're going to thirst constantly, but I can give you living waters. That's the anticipation that we see climax here for us in Revelation 22. Listen to the words of Jesus, because I love the interaction between him and her. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's given us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I gave give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to this well and draw water again. As one wrote, he said, the point of this passage is to teach that the eternal state God's people will live at is the source of the life-giving stream, the very presence of God himself. Fascinating to see that anticipation climax here at this moment. Glimpses of what God was still yet going to do for those who trust in him. And I bring these passages out to you specifically to challenge you to think, what shall I trade the living waters that God has given me that allows me to not thirst after the things of this world again? What is worth trading that for. Keep that in the back of your mind when you think that you are, that there, I should say, something else is better that this world has to offer. Ask yourself, are you trading in the living fountain of God for a cistern that is broken and cannot hold water? But then we are introduced to a tree. And again, in Ezekiel 47, this river that Ezekiel saw was aligned by trees on each side. Here, these trees seem to be apparent. The tree of life in the Greek is in the singular form. And we know that this tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And even the leaves of the trees play a role, apparently, for the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. The 12 different types of fruit are not specified as to what that indicates other than the fact that it yields fruit each and every month. Meaning that it's always in season, always abundant, always there. There are, today, we have to wait till certain seasons before certain fruits are available, don't we? I love Honeycrisp apples. They are just the bomb. Love them. But I gotta wait till fall to get a really good one every year. I'm also a big fan of watermelon. Hi, my name is Eric Benson. I'm addicted to watermelon. I love watermelon. And the worst thing they could have ever done is made seedless watermelon. There's there's no I, you just go through it. But you gotta wait until summer to yeah. 
there's no seasons. It's always there. I believe that's what John's saying. It's always there. It's always ready. It's always abundant. It's never out of season. You're not going to go there and they're not going to have any or you miss a window of opportunity. It is always there. Freely for us. Of course, the tree of life first made its appearance in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? As we read in Genesis 2, 9 through 10, we read this. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. It appears that Adam and Eve had complete access to the tree of life until they disobeyed God and fell into sin. For it was only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were prohibited in eating. And once they did, of course, their eyes were open and reality came into play and death entered the scene. And so that they would not stay in that eternal state, they were excommunicated, they were expelled from the garden, and the tree of life and knowledge of good and evil were protected by the cherubim that God placed outside the entrance to the garden. Here there is no gate. There are no angels prohibiting people from coming. What had been relinquished through the fall of Adam and Eve have been, has been completely regained through the sacrifice and the offering and the person of Jesus Christ. And by faith, we can now enter into that relationship with him and enjoy this for all eternity. But of course, Adam and Eve, they did not heed the word of the Lord. Genesis two fifteen through 17, And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat you shall surely die. And by Genesis 3, remember that sliver of the portion of Bible that we showed you at the front of it? By Genesis 3, verse 22, we read, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the gate of Eden. He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's all been eliminated. Now it is easily accessible, readily accessible for all, for all eternity. Restoring that which was completely distorted by sin to its state of utter perfection once again is what Christ has done for us. John here seems to indicate to us that the leaves of this tree also were for the healing of the nations, which is an actual term, I believe, out of Ezekiel 47, I believe, verse 12. Meaning that 
the word healing here in the Greek is the same word that we get the word therapeutic from. As one commented on it, he said this, Robert Mounts in his commentary, to eat of its fruit would be to live forever. In John's vision, the tree would produce 12 kinds of fruit, yielding a fresh crop month by month. But the abundance and the variety of fruit being emphasized, God's provision is ever new and always more than adequate for us. As he continued on, we discover that the leaves itself, the healing property of them, as one wrote Tom Constable, the great New Testament scholar, wrote, healing really means health-giving. Since there will be no death in the new earth, these leaves will uh, evidently promote well-being. And as one other commented about these leaves, the healing leaves indicate the complete absence of physical and spiritual want. The life to come will be a life of abundance and perfection. Therapeutic leaves. There will be tea in heaven. And it will be for the well-being of all. It is interesting to note that in John's first rendition of the example of the New Jerusalem, as he was apparently explaining to us the exterior of the New Jerusalem, that the people of God shall dwell in for all eternity, it was all mineral-based. But here, as we walk in, is the luscious garden that it contains. As once he noticed this, up until this chapter, the New Jerusalem seems to be all mineral and no vegetables, which I wouldn't be, I'm not a big fan of vegetables. Its appearance is as dazzling display of a fabulous jewelry store, and we wonder if there is no soft grass to sit upon, or no green trees to enjoy, or no water to drink, or food to eat. However, here are introduced the elements which add rich softness to the cities of this elaborate beauty. As John goes on in verse 3, he also reminds us that there will no longer be anything accursed. When Adam and Eve fell, their sin not only affected them, death entered in, Immediately two animals were slaughtered by God and their skins were used as covering to cover Adam and Eve so the animals were affected. Creation was affected. Death had entered in. Death reigns over all of creation. Paul states that creation currently groans waiting for that day of liberation. That day that it's coming that once again it will no longer be tainted. Not only you and I, but all that God has created, all that God said was good, He's now going to bring to that point. It's all going to be good once again. It'll be perfect. Nothing of the curse will touch it in any way, shape, or form. No death, no sin, no consequences of sin, sickness, Worry, anger, murder, wrath, gone, eliminated. And there, nothing will be accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now that is important for us to notice how John continues to offer us that bit of information 
that on the throne of God and of the Lamb, it is the Lamb sitting on the throne. It is a wonderful state of the uh, statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, that it is Him who is reigning for eternity along with the Father, and it is Him who is there present on the throne. We'll be in it. There's no need of a temple for this time with God there will be perfect fellowship between us and him. And his servants will worship him. You and I, for all eternity, will worship him. Praising him, thanking him, adoring him for the God in who he is. And this next portion is something that we should not read over quickly. It is something that we should read and then consider for a moment and ponder. They will see his face. I can't fathom the opportunity the disciples had to see the physical form of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Before that, I can't, cons- I can't even fathom that opportunity that Moses had. And it's interesting that Moses' heart was for God. And what did Moses want? He wanted to simply see him. And God says, you can't, Moses. You'll die. So hiding Moses in the crevice of the canyon wall, placing his hand over him, passed by and Moses was given a glimpse of his backside. And still it had a adverse effect on him. He came, his hair was white and so forth. He'd seen God. Wow. We're going to see him face to face. I think we could just stop right there, ask Chris to return and lead us in a final song of worship and be satisfied. To know that our God came and reconciled us back to himself through the person of Christ. And at this point now, we will be allowed to see him for all eternity face to face. Nothing will hinder that. And they will see his face. As one stated and asked us to consider, the greatest of all eternity's blessing is reflected In the one phrase, they will see his face. Moses, the great lawgiver of the old dispensation, was not allowed to see the face of God because God had declared no one may see him and live. But Moses was allowed to see only the back of God. In the ancient world, let us understand that when one was guilty and found guilty of a crime, if he was brought in before the king, First, he was not allowed to be brought in before the king at all unless the king requested his presence. If the individual that was accused of a crime and found guilty of a crime had the opportunity of an interaction or brought into the presence of the king, he was forbidden from looking upon the face of that king, knowing that he was a convicted criminal. You and I, in our fallen sinful state, were in a position 
of conviction and that conviction led to a sentence of death. We were guilty before God. If it weren't for Christ himself who adorned us with his righteousness, we would not be able to enter into the throne room of, the, of, the, of God boldly at this time through prayer. At this point, we will be completely and once and for all glorified, return to that glorified state because of the work of Jesus Christ. And because there we are glorified, we then can look on the face of our King. That's incredible to me. That one who is as filthy as I was in the sin that I carried could be made righteous by faith in and through the person of Jesus Christ, allowing me to have this opportunity that was reserved for those in the Beatitudes that only the pure in heart will see God. And now I can, through Christ, see his face. Let us never, never forget that. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And not only will we see him face to face, his name will be on their foreheads. As those who claimed allegiance to the beast and received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, we will have the name of God upon us for all eternity. There was an interesting Facebook post the other day as we're getting close to a political season next year that stated that they believed that all politicians should be like NASCAR drivers and be required to wear jackets with all of their sponsors' names on them. If you've ever seen a NASCAR driver, their jackets always have the emblems and logos of all the different sponsors that they have. And this person believed that politicians should be the same way, wanting to know who their financial sponsors were. When we get there, our jacket will have one name, his name. And that's the only name that you need. He is our sponsor, right? We're only here because of him. There's going to be one name, and it'll be on our foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp. I'm sorry, I said that twice now. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the God, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. Isaiah 60, 19 through 20 anticipated this moment. As Isaiah wrote, he said, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for your brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall be no more go down. I'm sorry, your sun shall no more go down. 
nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. As we consider this for a moment, chapters 21 and 22, as we've read through these together, we now know what awaits for you and I when we get to heaven. The eternal state, our eternal dwelling with God. Let me ask you a question after looking at it in some detail. And again, the awe of this, the wonder of all of this. I have no doubt that John did his best to contain it in words. I mean, Paul, I'm convinced if if Paul wrote the book of Revelation, it'd be one sentence. Because when he saw the third heaven, he couldn't even describe it. He's like, it was too glorious for words. It was like, he couldn't even describe it. John here is just writing his heart out, wanting us to get a glimpse of what is going to be there awaiting us for all eternity. And hopefully, as you read these, you will grow somewhat homesick. Homesickness is a real condition that people can experience here on this earth. When either there are anxious and worried about leaving their home or have been gone for a long period of time. Those who find themselves homesick because they've been gone from home for a long period of time often find that what they do to suppress the depression and anxiety and the worry and the fear that this homesickness creates is that they often gravitate towards things that remind them of home. Whatever they have on their person even though they may be distance, a great distance away from home, they hold on to those things. A soldier holding on to a picture of his wife, a, uh, an individual holding on to a postcard that he bought at the airport before he left, or whatever it may be, some item from home that reminds him of home. The item that God gave us to sustain us during this time that at those moments that we may feel homesick for heaven, for eternity with our God, is His Word. His Word. And when we start feeling possibly the angst of being homesick, we can dive into His Word and we can get a glimpse of what is still yet to come to encourage us at that moment. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. I want to read this to you because it was really summed up something for me. And he did it very well as he is so uh, eloquent in his speaking. What a magnificent hope God's people have. When you compare it to the imaginative myths and weird folklore and the false hopes and the various religions you realize why Christians live our lives homesick for heaven. When I compare the celestial city to the heavenly hopes of other religions, I cannot help but feel the most blessed man on the earth. For example, when the Buddhist or the Hindu thinks of the age yet to come, he is bound to consider the future in a state of, of um, continuation in the guise of reincarnation, He's going to come back over and over and over until he gets it right. That's what they have to look forward to. 
And maybe I'll get it right next time. And maybe I'll get past it. As one wrote, the spiritual equivalent of spinning one's wheels. Then I thought of the Taoists who view death with indifference. They don't care about it at all. It's found again in the eastern areas, the oriental areas of the world. To them, it is the ultimate oblivion, a state of non-doing. Talk about something to look forward to. Muslims around the world, they often wait for a paradise that consists of 70 virgins simply satisfying their carnal needs and pleasures. That kindly sounds more like Las Vegas than heaven. Or what about Mormons? They one day believe eventually they will become gods and goddesses and have their own worlds to populate. And their own spiritual babies. That's a lot of work for heaven. Nothing compares. Nothing compares. But for us as Christians, I've discovered, and maybe you have also, that we have this glorious hope that waits for us. And yet so many Christians are still convinced that heaven is simply a place where we're going to dwell on clouds and be all cute little babies with diapers. They got diapers, round little bellies. I want that to be gone in heaven. I'm tired of working on it. I, I, I want to be lean and mean in heaven, okay? Full head of hair. Fabio paling in comparison, okay? But sitting on a, har- a cloud playing a harp? No, that's not heaven. And so many Christians have reduced it to such meaningless things. And God says, no, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And God has given us the opportunity to enjoy that through the person of Jesus Christ. In my notes at home, I wrote a sentence as I've been going through the book of Revelation. If Revelation doesn't bring you to your knees in praise and worship of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure which book of the Bible will do so. Regardless in how you view the events that unfold within it, it has to be one of those, Lord, I I would never make it to this point. I'd never make it back to the Shire if it wasn't for you, Lord. And there will be no more death, no more weeping. The fruit of the tree of life is there in abundance for all. The leaves are there for the healing of the nation. And we will enjoy God seeing him face to face, illuminated by the light that proceeds from him himself. He himself. Are you homesick yet? If you are, grab your Bibles and remind yourself of that day. And as we wait in great anticipation for that day, let us be actively involved serving our Lord with our whole heart, beginning with loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and living purely here on this earth for the glory of God.